Well, good morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from Psalm 4. If you need a copy of God's Word, there's one, should be one in front of you. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Man, it is great to see you. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is John Kirshner. I'm one of the pastors. I'm up at the North Campus. They don't let me out very often. So um, it is great to be with you today. Um, So we're doing a little summer series in the book of Psalms, right? That's right. Okay, I'm in the right right book. That's, That's helpful. So I don't think you've been going through this sequentially, correct? Okay. So the way this works is Psalms 1 and 2 have been referred to like the double door entrance into the book of Psalms, right? Psalms 1 and 2 speak of a righteous man who is also the king. And when we get into Psalm 3, we metaphorically enter into the book of Psalms. We go through the double doors and we enter into the book of Psalms. And what do we find there? We find trouble. Psalm 3, we find trouble. God's king, a little bit unexpectedly, is given all these promises by God, and as we step into Psalm 3, God's king finds a world of trouble, and that's what we find in Psalm 4 as well. And so before we look at Psalm 4, let me pray for us again. Our Father and our God, we come to you Lord, this morning we need to hear you. We need to hear you and take it to heart. And we need your Holy Spirit to do that. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in a way that we could could hear and take it to heart. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2014, the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, ran this headline, JK's Sob Story. Now, my initials are JK, and I can tend to tell sob stories, but this headline wasn't about me. It was about, maybe you can guess, JK Rowling. Rowling? Rowling? Oh, I heard both. I'm going to say Rowling, J.K. Rowling. 
author of the Harry Potter books. You may have heard of those books. Maybe? Yeah? Okay. Well, basically, the Daily Mail alleged that J.K. lied. The article said that she had given a knowingly false account and falsely accused um, some members of, of the church she attended of saying and doing things uh, to hurt her. But that's not what J.K. said. In fact, she spoke about her time at the church in this interview with immense gratitude. And so understandably, J.K. was distressed when, when this article was published. And so she was so distressed that eventually she decided to sue the Daily Mail for libel. Now, if your name isn't Jim Spaghettis, let me just remind you what libel is. Libel is a published, it's a published statement that is damaging to a person's reputation. So J.K. sued the Daily Mail for libel, and eventually the case was settled out of court. The Daily Mail issued a public and formal apology. It admitted, it acknowledged that it actually published lies, and it also gave um, a substantial award in damages, which J.K. donated to charity. But words don't have to be published to be hurtful and damaging. I mean, you've all had firsthand experience with hurtful words. And in Psalm 4, hurtful words come at David. Psalm 4 may involve Absalom's rebellion, like in, in Psalm 3. That may be part of the context here. We can't be sure. But what we can be sure of is that hurtful words are what cause David distress in Psalm 4. And yet in his distress, David finds peace. He finds rest in God. And I think that's a fair way to sum up Psalm 4. When hurtful words come, find rest in God. When hurtful words come, find rest in God. Well, how does David find rest in God? He does four specific things. He speaks to God. He listens to God. He remembers about God, and then he asks God. He speaks, he listens, he remembers, and he asks. And I just want to say up front, it's not a formula. Psalm 4 is not a formula. It's not four steps to peace. Ultimately, prayer is about a relationship. And so Psalm 4 shows us what, what David's relationship with God is like. When hurtful words come at David, the first thing he does is he turns and he speaks to God. It's a significant move. It's a significant act of faith. When you turn in your trouble and speak to God, it's a significant act of faith. Look at verse 1. He says, answer me when I call. Oh God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Hopefully you can hear David's distress, right? He's shaken up. He's off balance. He's wobbling. He's desperate. Answer me when I call. Oh God of my righteousness. He attempts to steady himself by remembering who God is. God is the living God. 
right? He's the living God. He's the God who does right, who sees right, who judges right, who acts right. And God isn't those things theoretically or abstractly for David. He's those things personally for him. He says, God of my righteousness. David's relationship with God isn't merely theoretical. It's very practical. David remembers past distress. We don't know. Maybe he's thinking of Goliath or Saul or, or the Philistines. But whatever it is, he remembers how God acted in the past to give help and to give relief. And so he says, be gracious to me now and hear my prayer. You know, stoop down in kindness and help me. Hear me and do something, God. David speaks to God about his need. One of the central motivations to prayer is need. Paul Miller points out that our culture programs us to prize intellect, competency, and wealth. So practically, practically, we think we can do life without God. He says this, if we think we can do life on our own, we won't take prayer seriously. Our failure to pray will always feel like something else, like a lack of discipline or too many obligations. And his point is that at the end of the day, a lack of prayer is simply a lack of understanding our real need. And difficulties remind us of our need. It might be the difficulties of hurtful words coming at us. It might be some other difficulty. For me, God used parenting to remind me constantly of my need. I can relate to Paul Miller. He says, it took me 17 years to realize I couldn't parent on my own. Pretty fast learner, huh? 17 years. It was not a great spiritual insight, just a realistic observation. If I didn't pray deliberately for members of my family by name every morning, they'd kill one another. Now, that's probably a little bit of hyperbole, but I have five boys, okay? And when they were younger, we had a few occasions where we came home to holes in the drywall. In fact, one time there was a hole in the shape of a head. And if you're parents, you know how this goes. My wife and I get home, we see the head-shaped hole, and we say, guys, what happened? And you know, what? Yeah, they just look at blank stares. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I mean, it was crazy. Miraculously, Paul Miller says they'd kill each other. Miraculously, this head in the drywall, this head in the, this hole in the wall was right between the studs. It was crazy. Anyway, Miller concludes, it didn't take me long to realize that I did my best parenting by prayer. I began to speak less to the kids and more to God. The more we're in touch with our need, the more we speak to God. David knows his need. He constantly speaks to God. His relationship with God isn't just theoretical. It's very practical. 
I think one thing God is doing in our difficulties is teaching us our need. Moving our relationship from the theoretical to the practical more and more. And like any relationship, it takes time. It takes practice. And it takes difficulty. But slowly, by God's grace and through His Spirit, we speak more to God, growing in our relationship with Him. So for David, when hurtful words come, he turns to God and he asks Him to act. Do something to vindicate me. Do something to set the record straight. David first speaks to God. And then David listens to God. David listens to God. But first, before he listens to God, he responds to the people who are speaking hurtful words. These people are fabricating stories and speaking lies. And so he appeals to their sense of right and wrong. Yeah? He appeals to their sense of right and wrong, hoping that they'll admit their lies and vindicate David, kind of like the Daily Mail owned their lies and acknowledged it. And so David addresses these mean people. He says in verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? If you notice, there's that word selah right after that. Just a quick word on that term. It's, it's really an unknown term. Some think it's a musical notation of some kind. I think it means the guitar solo goes here. Anyway, basically David says, come on. He's addressing the mean people and he says, come on, how long are you guys going to keep this up? How long? We both know there's no substance or truth to what you're saying. We both know you're, you're lying. The footnote above the word men informs us that these mean people are also important people. They're people with power and influence. Kind of like social media influencers in our culture. Influencers have, have power and status and influence to affect the beliefs, habits, and actions of others. And so what's going on here is these powerful and influential people are speaking lies about King David, and other people are believing them. Their words turn David's kingly reputation, his glory, into shame. These are words that do serious damage. They're, wounds that, they're words that wound deeply. Man, and words are like that, aren't they? I don't know who came up with the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Like, who came up with that? Isn't that just the dumbest thing you've ever heard? Like, how could that get any cultural traction? It just seems so patently false. And it's not how the Bible sees words. According to the Bible, words have the power of life and death. Words can be like sword thrusts and scorching fire. Sword thrusts and scorching fire do serious damage. And these hurtful words have done serious damage to David. They've brought shame 
They've ruined his reputation. So when hurtful words come, David appeals to these mean people, but he doesn't put his trust in men ultimately. He puts his trust in God. And the way he does that is instead of listening to people, he listens to God. He says this in verse 3, But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord, Yahweh, hears when I call. Here's what David's doing. He's reminding himself about what God says about him. That word godly there, that word translated godly, is the Hebrew word hasid. And one scholar describes it like this. It means that the one whom God has loved, loves him back. The one whom God has already poured out love upon is loving God back. And so David remembers God's promise of unfailing love to him in the Davidic covenant. David remembers the specific promises that God made to him. As God's anointed king, Yahweh promised David love, protection, and access. And so David reminds himself that because he's loved by Yahweh, Yahweh does hear him when he calls. He does hear his prayers. David reminds us that when hurtful words come, what we need most is to listen to God. One author says it this way, when suffering comes, what we need most is to hear God talking. What you need most this morning, what I need most this morning, is to hear God talking. Now, you're not King David, but if you trust Jesus, God tells you what he thinks about you. Here are just a few of the things he says. In Jesus Christ, God is for you. God is for you. I'm pausing because that needs to sink into your heart. I know that in my head, but it's not really sunk into my heart. I really need to hear God talking and say that to me. God is for you. That's a significant statement. Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? God adopted you. You are a treasured, valued child of the living God. God hears you. God acts for you. When hurtful words come, it's hard to hear God talking. It's hard to hear God talk when you've got swords stuck in you and you're on fire. But that's what you need most. One thing God is doing in your difficulties is teaching you to hear Him talk and teaching you to take it to heart. The more your relationship with God moves from the theoretical to the practical, the more you hear God talk and the more you take it to heart. Hurtful words hurt. That's real. But what God says about you is more real. 
When hurtful words come, David speaks to God. Then David listens to God. And third, David remembers about God. David remembers about God. In verses 2 and 3, David responds to the mean people, right? He's responding to the people who are attacking him. In verses 4 and 5, he responds to the mad. First he responds to the mean. Now he's going to respond to the mad. And these mad people are David's supporters. They're David's friends. They're angry at the lies. I think of one of David's friends, his nephew, named Abishai. In 2 Samuel 16, this guy named Shimei comes at David and curses him. Tons of hard words, hurtful words. And Abishai is with David, and he says to David, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Now you wouldn't be so blunt, right? But when hurtful words come, you're mad. And here's what David says to the mad. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The Hebrew word there for be angry is a word that means to shake, to tremble with either fear or anger. The Apostle Paul, if you, if you remember, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 quotes this verse. He says, be angry and do not sin. And I think all of that to say there's such a thing as right anger. When mean people lie and slander, when they speak hurtful words, we're right to be mad. Anger in this context can be an expression of a desire for justice. Does that make sense? I mean, God gets angry, right? Things like envy, murder, strife, lies, hate, gossip, slander, rebellion, pride, disobedience to parents, and unbelief stir God's anger. God hates these things. He's angry with these things. And the reason He's angry is because He loves. These things ruin and destroy the creation He loves so much. So anger in itself is not wrong. The problem is that for you and I, for fallen humans like us, right anger quickly turns sour. Like milk left outside on a hot summer day. Right anger curdles. And that's why David and Paul both say, be angry and do not sin. Well, how do we do that? For starters, David says, ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. In other words, think it over and keep quiet, right? How to be angry and not sin? First, pause. Don't just react, pause, and think it over. Keep quiet. How else to be angry and not sin? David says, offer right sacrifices. And I think this means remember God's mercy. Remember God's 
mercy. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were a picture of what the sinner deserved, right? The animal was a substitute for the sinner. The animal gets God's justice, and the sinner gets God's mercy. Remembering God's mercy to you tempers your demand for justice. R.C. Sproul tells the story of his first semester as a college professor. And he tells the story of the first day of class. He had the syllabus. You know, it's all written out. He says, look, there are these three small papers. Three small papers that are due throughout the semester. Here are the dates. Circle them on your calendar. No late papers will be accepted. What did I say? The class repeated, no late papers will be accepted. No late papers will be accepted, period. When the first paper came due, you can guess, a few students were late. And Sproul recalls that these students came to him and they said, oh, Dr. Sproul, please, please, It was our first time away from home and we didn't manage our time well. Please let us turn the papers in late. And he said, okay. Okay. But don't let it happen again. All right? So then the second term paper came due and you can guess what happened. More students were late. And he said... These students came and they said, oh, Dr. Sproul, it was homecoming week. We had all these other tests. We didn't manage our time well. Please, please let us turn these papers in late. And he said, okay, but don't let it happen again. I'm not going to accept late papers again. And when the third paper came due, you can guess what happened. Most of the students hadn't turned in their paper. And he said they walked in like they were on vacation. Casual, hey, Dr. Sproul, we'll get you that paper next week. Don't worry about it. And Dr. Sproul said, no. No late papers accepted this time. And he said that one student bolted out of his seat, and you can guess what he said. He yelled, that's not fair. And Sproul said, he looked around, who said that? And this student, I I can't remember his name, Smith, he said, Smith, what did you say? He said, that's not fair. And Dr. Sproul said, okay, so you want justice. And he looked in his book and he said, Smith, says here, you didn't turn the first two papers in on time. You want justice, F, F. And then he looked around and he said, does anybody else want justice? When we're wronged unjustly, it's easy to slide into self-righteous anger. We demand justice and forget we've been shown mercy. David tells his supporters, and he's probably telling himself, as well. Remember God's mercy. 
For us, we remember God's mercy not by offering sacrifices, but by remembering Jesus' sacrifice. The sacrifice that all the animal sacrifices pointed toward. The sacrifice of Jesus on a Roman cross. On the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. God's anger pointed, concentrated, poured out on Jesus in our place. And Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice turns God's anger to favor. How to be angry and not sin? Remember that your sin is so serious that it cost God the life of His beloved Son. You and I deserve crucifixion. But God has shown us mercy and forgiveness. And when we remember God's mercy toward us, it tempers our demand for justice. So offer right sacrifices. Remember God's mercy and put your trust in the Lord. I think he's saying, remember God's justice. Trust that God will vindicate and execute justice. Trust that God will judge justly, if not now, then later. As a truly innocent man, Jesus endured the injustice of crucifixion. Vindication for Jesus came only after death. Three days after his death on a cross, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating his sinless life, vindicating his claims, vindicating his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, vindicating God's justice. Jesus' resurrection points to a future resurrection of every human being. Every human being will be resurrected. For those who trust Jesus, a resurrection of vindication. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will be resurrected into acceptance and vindication. But for those who reject Jesus, a resurrection of judgment. Every careless word, completely and comprehensively judged and justice poured out. God's justice either falls on Jesus in your place or it falls on you personally. Remember God's justice. When hurtful words come, it's easy to get mad. Sometimes it's right to get mad, but David reminds the mad, be angry and do not sin. Remember God's mercy and remember God's justice. So David speaks to God, he listens to God, he remembers about God, and finally he asks God. Hurtful words can make us mad, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. And hurtful words can make us sad. And so David's going to address his supporters, his friends who are sad in verses 6 and 7. David responds to the sad and he says this, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Come on. I mean, many, many of David's friends are sad and they keep on saying, what in the world? Who will show us some good? When is something good going to happen? 
When will the conflict end? When will the king's reputation be restored? When will the lies stop? And notice how David prays. He prays, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. David asks for God's presence. Hurtful words are hard. I mean, you know that, I know that. Hurtful words are discouraging. Hurtful words are exhausting. And David knows what he and his friends need most is to know that God is with them. Let me ask you this. What's the greatest and highest blessing in the Bible? What's the greatest and highest blessing in the Bible? It's not health and wealth. It's not comfort and ease. It's not spouse and family. It's God's presence. That's what was lost in Genesis 3, primarily. God's presence. It cost Jesus' life to bring us back to God into his presence. God's presence is the highest and greatest blessing, and that's what David prays for. What do you need most today? To hear God talking and to experience his presence. David Pallison says it this way, what you need most is to hear God talking and to experience him purposefully at work. When you hear, take to heart and know that he is with you, everything changes even when nothing has changed in your situation. And that's how David can say in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. When grain and wine abound means circumstances are great, right? It's harvest, it's plenty, it's great. Circumstances are great when grain and wine abound. But David could say he has more joy than they have even when his circumstances aren't great. In 2003, I took a business trip to Scotland. The first weekend, I went to Glasgow. I drove on the wrong side of the road up to Glasgow, about an hour from where I was staying. And I was by myself. It was cool. I mean, it's Glasgow, Scotland. I walked down, you know, the main streets. I visited popular sites. I... I even ran into protesters against America for the Iraq war and tried to pretend I wasn't an American somehow. The next Friday, my wife flew in to join me. And Saturday, we went to Glasgow. So this is a week later. Saturday, we went to Glasgow. We walked down the same streets, we visited the same sites, but it was a completely different experience for me. Why? Because of my wife's presence. David's circumstances haven't changed, but his experience of his circumstances has changed because of God's presence. David's prayer began in distress and ends in rest. Look at verse 8. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. 
Sometimes God answers prayer immediately and intensely. By God's grace through his spirit, David hears God talking and takes it to heart. God is for him. God is with him. And knowing that David experiences peace, he finds rest in God. You know, no Benadryl, no NyQuil. He lays down and he goes to sleep. There was another king who found rest in God when hurtful words came. King Jesus experienced a lot of hurtful words. Enemies spread rumors that he was demon-possessed. His family said he was crazy. Powerful people encouraged others, others to lie about him so they might put him to death. Jesus knows what it feels like when hurtful words come. Jesus knows what it's like to pray Psalm 4. Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, saw firsthand how Jesus responded when hurtful words came. And he remembers it this way in the book of 1 Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in, in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When hurtful words came, Jesus continued entrusting himself. I think this speaks of an ongoing process and an ongoing relationship. Jesus knows his need, so he constantly speaks listens, remembers, and, act, and asks. He lived a praying life. And you know, the more I've thought about this, I imagine his praying life wasn't the easy, automatic experience that we picture. I imagine his praying life included distress, desperation, anger, and discouragement. I imagine it included some sleepless nights. I imagine Jesus had to wrestle to find rest and keep wrestling. Psalm 4 isn't a formula. It's not four steps to find rest in God. It's just not. Sometimes we don't move from distress to rest quickly or neatly or even at all. Sometimes we have to keep praying Psalm 4, keep speaking, keep listening, keep remembering, and keep asking. David shows us what a practical relationship with God looks like when hurtful words come. He also shows us that God is at work when hurtful words come. In the hurt and the pain, he's teaching you to speak, to listen, to remember, and to ask. He's teaching you to hear God talk and to take it to heart. In the process, your relationship with God moves more and more from the theoretical down to the practical. In the process, he's growing you up to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, great Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you for your great word 
We thank you for Psalm 4. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus this morning. Thank you that you have spoken. Would you help us hear you talk and take it to heart? Father, would you remind us that that's what we need more than anything? Even more than our circumstances to change. Father, we, we pray that would happen in many cases. God, I pray that, that, Lord, you would press this into our hearts today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.